2 Samuel 4, verses 1 to 12. Before we read the passage, it might help to remember the, the current state of affairs in the nation of Israel at this point as we're going along through these books. Chapter 3, verse 1 expressed it quite well. Let me remind you what it says. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. There you have it, friends. Israel is still divided, but the writing is on the wall, so to speak. David is growing stronger while the last vestiges of Saul's house grow weaker by the day. In fact, our passage this morning is the final act in that lopsided struggle between the house of David and the house of Saul. It's here in 2 Samuel 4 that Saul's house finally falls apart so that the path is clear for David to reign over all of Israel. But as we've come to expect in 2 Samuel, this final act is anything but easy. So let's give our attention now to God's Word and see what the Lord might have for us this morning. You can follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banah, the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of Benjamin from Baroth. For Baroth is also counted as part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gataim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab and Benah, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if they were to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to, to, to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hands and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we do marvel at Your grace that would call sinners like us in from the darkness and rebellion against You in which we happily lived 
You would call us out of those things and bring us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Father, we marvel at that grace and we stand upon that grace today and ask, Father, very boldly in Christ that You would give us ears to hear and a mind to understand and a heart to believe what it is the Scriptures teach here in 2 Samuel 4. Father, remind us that all of God's Word is given to us for our good. And give us humble hearts now to listen and to hear. Father, grant me the grace to speak faithfully from the Scriptures and keep me from error. And give Your people discernment, God. We know that Your grace always comes to Your people through Your Word. So we pray now that Your Word would do that. That it would build us up in the grace of Christ. And we ask this in His name and for His glory. Amen. Gruesome familiarity. That is perhaps the best way to summarize 2 Samuel 4. This chapter is both gruesome and familiar. The gruesome nature of the text is unmistakable. You can't miss it if you tried. Heads are cut off. Executions are ordered. Bodies are dismembered and hung in the public square for everyone to see. It's all very gory and gruesome. But it's also somewhat familiar. Did you catch the familiarity as we read the text together? It sounds an awful lot like the events of chapter 1, does it not? In both instances, violence is done to the house of Saul in hopes of gaining David's favor. But in both instances, David responds with swift punishment on the perpetrators. In chapter 1, it was a deceitful Amalekite who claimed to kill Saul, and here in chapter 4, it's the ruthless sons of Rimmon, but across both chapters, the gruesome action has a familiar ring to it. These are attempts to bring in the kingdom through violence rather than through faith. These are attempts to grab hold of God's promises in ways that violate God's Word. You see, that's really the theme of these opening chapters in 2 Samuel. David is headed for the throne of Israel. There is no doubt about that. There's never been a doubt about that. But the question is, how will David get the throne? Through violence and gore? Or through faith in the sovereign God of Israel? Will he bring in the kingdom by the sword? Or will he bring in the kingdom by faith? That's really the issue here. The challenge for us, however, is not so much dealing with all of the gore, but making the connection from David's life to ours. We certainly need to observe how David responds and how he exhibits faith in the Lord in the midst of these gruesome temptations. But we also need to press the text home upon our own hearts. Remember friends, until you've applied God's Word, you have not studied God's Word. It's always observation that leads to application. And so we certainly need to observe David, but we also need to press the text home upon our own hearts. We need to place our lives under this particular passage of the Bible and ask ourselves, how is this text calling me to repent and to change? Where is it that I need to grow? You see, David's not alone in dealing with the temptation to grasp for God's promises in ways that violate God's Word. That's a temptation that besets all of God's people, regardless of time and culture. And therefore, friends, this passage, even with all of its gruesome familiarity, does have something important to say to you and to me. 
Specifically, 2 Samuel 4 offers three exhortations for how God's people ought to live in this often gruesome world. Three exhortations that I trust will strengthen us to continue walking the road of the kingdom by faith and grasping for God's promises in ways that honor the Lord, not violate His Word. The first exhortation is actually a warning. And it comes in verses 1-8. to Beware of wicked schemes hiding behind godly language. Beware of wicked schemes hiding behind godly language. Verse 1 reminds us that things are rapidly changing in the northern part of Israel. You'll remember that Abner, the commander of the army, was the real power broker in Israel. It was Abner who put Saul's son on the throne, and therefore it was Abner who called all the shots. Abner was the puppet master. But now Abner is dead. So there's this power vacuum in the northern kingdom. But that power vacuum is quickly filled in verse 2 as we meet the sons of Remen, Benah and Rechab. Verses 2 and 3 give us the relevant background to this men. And the important point is that they belong to the tribe of Benjamin, which is also Saul's tribe. Why is this important? Because it establishes from the start that David has nothing to gain from these men. David belongs to the tribe of Judah, you'll remember. So it's not David's kinsmen, it's not David's relatives that rise up against Saul's house. This is Saul's own people. The tribe of Benjamin do violence to the house of Saul. Now, the sons of Remen are going to commit an atrocious crime in verse 6. But before we ever get to that atrocity, the author goes out of his way to show us that these men are wicked. We don't have to wait for the murder to know what these men are are made of. The author highlights their wickedness in a couple of clear ways. First of all, the sons of Remen are presented as self-serving. They're self-serving. We're introduced to Banah and Rechab in verses 2 and 3, but look at the verses that surround their description. Verses 1 and 4. Do you notice what both of those verses have in common? Both describe a descendant of Saul who is weak. Do you see it there? In verse 1, it's Ishbosheth who is weak and afraid. And in verse 4, it's Mephibosheth who is young and physically crippled. Both men stand in Saul's line so they could legitimately claim the throne, but both are too weak to do so. In other words, there's no heir standing in the way. If the sons of Remen play their cards right, they can easily get ahead. You see, that's the point of these opening verses. The sons of Remen see the weakness of Saul's house, house, and they conclude, here's a chance for us to climb a few rungs higher on the ladder. These men are self-serving. Along with that, the sons of Remen are also cowards. Look at verse 5. And notice the detail given regarding their plot. Now the sons of Remen, the Berethite, Rechab, and Benah set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. Now you could say the author is just adding a little color to his narrative to keep things interesting, but that misses the point, I think. The detail reveals their cowardice. 
It's one thing to pull off a coup by storming the palace and fighting your way through the king's bodyguards. That would still be wrong, but at least I could respect the bravery required to do it. But the sons of Rimmon do nothing of the sort. They don't storm the palace. They sneak up during nap time. Verses 6 and 7 tell the rest of the story. Hiding their true motive, the two men sneak in, they stab Ishbosheth to death, and they cut off his head. Verse 7 actually re- repeats the whole thing and repeats the fact that it happened in Ishbosheth's room on his own bed so that there can be no doubt these men are cowards. There's nothing worse than a coward. So before we even witness their crime, we know that the sons of Rimmon are wicked men. The author's description provides all the evaluation that we need. But the passage takes a deeper turn in verse 8. It gets worse. Already we know these are wicked men, but when they come to David, notice how they hide their wickedness behind godly language. Verse 8, And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Talk about boldness, friends. These men essentially confess to murder. They are holding Ishbosheth's bloody head, remember? But they then attempt to justify their crime by claiming to be the agents of God. That is some first rate spin. I mean, the sons of Remen have the audacity to claim that all of this is just God's providence doing what it's going to do. See, David, we're just helping the Lord's promise along. We haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing to be alarmed about here. Sure, we killed this man on his own bed, but we only did it to serve the Lord. We only did it to serve you. Friends, we shouldn't underestimate how pernicious this is. Think about how many years David has spent on the run. Think about how long it has been since God promised him the throne of Israel. All of those long years, and now the throne is right there. Never mind the bloodshed. Never mind the murder. This is the kingdom we're talking about. And there is some truth mixed in with what they say, isn't there? Didn't God Himself promise that Saul would lose the kingdom forever? Didn't God say that? And wouldn't David be a better king than Saul? Hasn't David proven that he will listen to and obey God's Word? You see, all of that is true. So why not just overlook this little wickedness? Why not just close your eyes to this little murder and believe that this situation could be what God intends it to be? Fulfillment, David! Just take it! You see, it's pernicious. It's wickedness. Hiding behind a veneer of godly language. And that means this is a great temptation that confronts David in verse 8. Perhaps the greatest he's seen in the book so far. The kingdom's right there if he'll just take it. Friends, before we consider David's response to this temptation, we need to understand that not only is verse 8 pernicious, It's also present in our day. In nearly every area of life, we find ourselves confronted with this same scheme, wickedness, hiding behind godly language. It's in nearly every area. We find it on a cultural level. 
I just heard this week a report about the alarming increase in the rate of physician-assisted suicide in Canada. Doctors helping people end their own lives. It was truly a chilling report. But what was even more chilling is how this wicked practice is described in terms of compassion and tenderness. One person even had the audacity to claim that physician-assisted suicide was claimed at increasing a person's quality of life. Let that sink in for a minute. I'm killing you to make your life better. How can killing someone increase their quality of life? It's nonsensical. Death, by any definition, cannot serve life. But that's exactly how it was presented. Wickedness, hiding behind godly language. You see it on a cultural level. We also see it on what we could say is a theological level. Think of the number of churches that have been hijacked by false teachers. And if you don't know one, just turn on the television and you'll probably see one. Think of the number of churches that have been hijacked by false teachers. How do those false teachers come to your church? Not with pamphlets advertising their heresy, but with orthodox-sounding words that that disguise their true intent. We don't acknowledge this enough. I know we live in in this age where people wrongly believe that everyone is entitled to his or her, her own truth, but let me just remind us, there's only one truth. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Anyone who deviates from that teaching is a false teacher. And therefore we should be on guard against them. But they don't come to you saying, good morning, I'm a heretic. I'd like to hijack your church. They come saying, no, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the atonement. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the inerrancy of God's word. But then when you press them what they mean, they don't believe that at all. We need to remember and heed what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Again, it's wickedness hiding behind godly language. One of my favorite characters in history was a man named Irenaeus. And he wrote a treatise called Against Heresies. And in that treatise, he said, error never comes to you in its naked form. It always comes disguising itself so that you'll believe it. We see it on a theological level. Wickedness hiding behind godly language. It also confronts us on a relational level. One of the more sobering moments of my life was sitting across the table and listening to a man explain that since God wanted him to be happy, since God wanted his life to be blessed, then God would approve of his decision to leave his wife. The man even quoted Bible verses to justify his decision. And on the surface, it all sounded so good. It all sounded so pious. You see, it's all around us. Culturally, theologically, rationally. Don't let the cultural distance between 2 Samuel 4 and you disguise the point. It's all around us. Wickedness hiding behind godly language. But perhaps most telling, we see this in our own lives, don't we? If we're honest, friends, we're a lot more like the sons of Remen than we care to admit. I don't mean that we're assassinating unsuspecting kings in their beds. But I do mean that we often try to justify our wickedness, justify our sin by papering papering over it with some shallow God talk. 
So it goes like this. I'm not a harsh person who tears other people down. I just speak the truth. I'm not a backbiting gossip who causes division. I'm just passing along prayer requests so we can all stay informed. I'm not a prideful person who's self-promoting. I'm just giving glory to God for all the good gifts He'd given me. And on and on we could go. This isn't solely a problem out there in the culture or in the lives of other people. This is a problem in my own heart. So before we dismiss this gruesome scene as nothing more than an ancient blood feud, perhaps we should pause here and have humility enough to ask the Holy Spirit to work conviction in our own hearts. If wickedness often hides behind godly language, and it does, then where do I need to boldly stand up for what is truly right and good? Where do I need discernment that I might hold fast to the truth? And most pressing of all, where do I need to repent of my sinful scheming and pursue once again a life of honest holiness before the Lord? Those are the questions that come to us. Beware, friends, of wicked schemes hiding behind godly language and beware that it resides in our own hearts. As we continue on in the chapter, we find that our Second exhortation brings us back to consider David's response to these wicked men. Remember what we said just a moment ago. Verse 8 is a moment of great temptation for David. Great temptation. It's the temptation to abandon the way of faith and pursue the kingdom by the sword. And there's even a ready-made justification if David will just look past the wickedness. It's a great temptation. How will David respond? Well, verse 9 gives us both the answer and our second exhortation. Here God's Word calls us to battle temptation by remembering God's character and grace. Battle temptation by remembering God's character and grace. Friends, verse 9 is a wonderful example of faith in action. David models for us here how a believer ought to put truth to work in the fight against temptation. Understand, David is battling here. He's fighting for godliness in the face of wickedness. And we would do well to pay attention to his example. So notice again what David says. Just his opening statement, verse 9. But David answered, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Just stop right there. It's only a short statement but it contains a world of godly truth. First of all, notice that David remembers God's character, specifically God's faithfulness. At every point of David's life, the Lord has been faithful. God has not delivered David from some adversity, but from every adversity. And this is not an exaggeration. This is David's testimony. When Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, the Lord was faithful. When when Goliath charged David on the battlefield, the Lord was faithful. When Saul hunted for David day and night, the Lord was faithful. When David got himself into trouble with the Philistines, the Lord was faithful. Time and time again, this has been David's testimony, the faithfulness of God. And therefore, David does not need the help of these wicked men. He doesn't need their gruesome scheme. Do you see how it works, friends? This isn't David just using spiritual language to sound like he he knows his religious texts. This is David fighting for faith. He doesn't need these men. It's the faithful character of God 
that enables David to resist temptation at this moment. God has been faithful in the past, and that means God will be faithful today, and He will be faithful tomorrow. I don't need your wickedness. That's what David says. David remembers God's character. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ by faith, then you share with David this testimony of God's faithfulness. It's your testimony as well. Every day that you've drawn breath, you've done so because of the faithfulness of God. What's more, you likely have countless instances of God answering prayer and providing what you need, sometimes even before you knew that you needed it. So the question is not, do you share David's testimony? The question is, do you have eyes to see it? When the temptation arises, will you slow down long enough to recount all the ways that God has been faithful. I'm afraid that far too often we find ourselves overcome by temptation simply because we forget who God is and how He has proven Himself time and time again. In fact, that's that's a large part of how temptation works. It causes us to forget Temptation is like a fog that settles in over the port of our minds and it clouds our eyes from seeing the bright shining sun of God's faithfulness. It tells us that all around us is just darkness. But remembering burns that fog away. Remembering pushes through the cloud of temptation and grabs hold of the truth that God never changes. God never abandons His people. He never fails to do what He has promised. And seeing once more God's faithful character, I'm strengthened to resist temptation and continue walking by faith. So often, friends, we fall because we forget. So I know that we've emphasized remembering before in our series on Samuel, but the Lord is bringing it to our attention here again, likely because we still need to hear it. I still need to hear it. And I trust you do as well. Remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Remember His constant care and provision. One of God's attributes is that He is immutable. He cannot change. But the point of that doctrine is not so that we can then hold it up on the wall and say, look at immutability. Aren't I smart that I know that word? That's not what that doctrine's for. That doctrine's for fighting for faith. If God never changes, then what He did yesterday, He'll do today and I can trust Him. That's how David battles temptation in verse 9. And that's how the Lord intends us to fight as well, by remembering His faithful character. He never changes. David's battle's not finished, however. Along with God's character, David also remembers God's grace. Look again at verse 9, and notice what the Lord did when He faithfully met David in his adversity. The Lord redeemed David out of it. What a sweet word, friends. Redemption. It's a word that describes God's gracious action to rescue His people from trouble. To rescue them from trouble. Consider then what a powerful response this is to the sons of Remen. Here these men are, Banah and Rechab. Here they are with the head of Ishbosheth, And they are essentially offering to redeem David. Now I know they wouldn't put it that strongly, but that's what they're claiming. They're claiming to David, we'll redeem you. See? We'll be your deliverer. We will save you from your adversity with Saul. Just trust us. 
And in that moment, instead of listening to their scheme, what does David do? He recounts the Lord's grace. David reminds himself, these men are not my redeemers. The Lord is my Redeemer. His grace has carried me every step of the way, and He will certainly deliver me through to the end. He remembers God's grace. You see, friends, this is why remembering God's grace is so essential for the Christian life. It's because at its core, every temptation is an offer of redemption. Every temptation holds out the promise of salvation. That's how sin works. It promises to save you. So whether it is the temptation to lust, or to materialism, or to anger, every moment of temptation whispers to you, if you'll just give in on this point, you will be delivered. Take another glance, and you'll finally be satisfied. Grab for a few more things, and you'll finally be delivered. Lash out one more time and you'll be saved from your frustration. That's how temptation works, friends. It doesn't reason with you logically. It promises you salvation. It promises you deliverance if you will simply go along with what temptation demands. And that's why David's example here is so instructive because it illustrates that the only weapon we have against the promise of temptation is a better promise. God's grace given to us in Christ. That's the only weapon we have. When we remember God's grace to us, we cut the legs out from under temptation. Or to think, you can think of it this way. Think of the Christian life like a garden. And let's say that temptation is a weed that grows up in that garden. And it grows very fast and it grows very broad, but its roots are really shallow. How do you kill that temptation? You expose it to the heat of the sun. You expose it to the heat of the sun and it withers away because its roots don't go very deep. That's what temptation is like. It's a weed in the Christian life. And the way that you kill it is by exposing it to the light of God's grace, to the heat of the Gospel. You hold up the promises of sin and you compare them to the promises of Christ. And in that unthinkable light of the promise of Christ's grace, temptation is seen for what it is. Silly, phony, lying to you. Remember the grace of God in the Gospel. It's how temptation withers. That's not to say temptation instantly goes away if we just say the word grace. That doesn't work. And that's not to say the battle against temptation will be easy, but it should encourage us that God has given us everything we need to fight. 2 Peter 1.3 He has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And fight we can by remembering God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and then choosing by faith to walk day by day in that grace. We remember God's grace and then we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. There's the Christian life in one sentence. Remember God's grace and then discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. What a wonderful example it is in verse 9. It's just one phrase, but it's an example we should learn from, brothers and sisters, So let's do that. Let's learn from David's example and let's be people who fight for godliness. Not in the power of our own strength, but by remembering God's faithfulness and His grace. For surely, there is no temptation that can match who God is and what He has done. Amen? Amen. Well, that brings us to the end of the chapter. And one final exhortation. 
this time from verses 10 to 12. And the exhortation is this. Be encouraged that God's King will right every wrong. Be encouraged that God's King will right every wrong. Now, if you've been following David's story all along, then his response here in chapter 4 will not surprise you. David has never acted sinfully towards Saul and his household. And he's not going to start here. In fact, David himself emphasizes this in verses 10 and 11. Notice how David points to his past in order to explain the present. Look at what David says one more time. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? So David recounts the events of chapter 1, where that Amalekite claimed to have killed Saul, thinking it would please David, but in response, all the Amalekite received was his own death. Now here in chapter 4, David applies that event to these wicked men. If David executed the Amalekite, then how much more will the sons of Remen receive from David? The answer is much more. Notice verse 12. David has the men executed, their hands and feet cut off, and their bodies shamed by being hung in the public square. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. These men are hung on the wall or on a tree. Details don't matter. They're cursed. Why does David do this? Because as God's anointed king, David is upholding the Lord's justice. And by making it a public spectacle, David is teaching the people, the Lord will not tolerate this kind of wickedness in His kingdom. So is it gruesome? Yes. But it's also the right and just thing to do. I want to stress this. This is not merely retribution. This is not bloodthirsty vengeance. No, it's much more significant than that. This is God's King upholding God's Word by enforcing God's justice. And therein lies the significance for us, friends. We need to understand that this moment in 2 Samuel 4 is actually a foreshadowing of God's plan for the last day. Ask yourself, how will God deal with the injustice and unrighteousness we see all around us. The sons of Rimen are dead, but their spirit lives on today, and our world is still racked with bloodshed and violence and division. How will God deal with such injustice? How will God respond to such wicked men? The answer, friends, is through the reign of a righteous king. That's how God responds. The justice David enforced at Hebron points us all the way to the perfect justice of the new heavens and the new earth. You see, there is this line that runs from 2 Samuel 4 to Revelation 19. There's a line that runs from David's justice in Hebron to Jesus' justice from the back of a white horse. It's a straight line. From 2 Samuel 4 all the way to Revelation 19 when the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son, comes to right every wrong. And on that day, there will be no more violence. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more scheming. On that great day, the kingdom will come in its fullness. 
and the shadow of David's just reign will find its fulfillment in the perfect, eternal, just reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I know there's some gruesome familiarity here, friends, but let's not miss the encouragement that the Lord intends for us to see. And yes, I do mean encouragement. Let's read 2 Samuel 4 in light of the Gospel. And when we do that, this is the good news we find. God's King will uphold God's Word by enforcing God's justice, and He will do all of this for the good of God's people. So, brothers and sisters, perhaps the best way to conclude our time is by reading a promise from the prophet Isaiah. A promise that we most often remember at Christmas, but one that is actually most fitting for today's text. It's a promise from Isaiah 9. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so, my brothers and sisters, we go out today with the prayer that God's people have prayed down through the ages. It's the right prayer of response to 2 Samuel 4. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we...